When was last time you fell down, but then learning about someone else's story gave you the courage to face your own challenges? When was last time you faced a challenging situation and then spent your time ruminating on what happened? Can a deep pain be turned into something positive and perhaps even one's life purpose? Join me after the intro for a conversation with a very special friend with whom we will answer these and many more questions. Stay tuned. Do you feel stuck in your life? Do you feel unhappy but not completely sure what that is? Do you hold a grudge towards someone for something they did which affects you and the way you live your life? Have you ever told someone, I forgive you, but in reality you were not completely over what happened? Why is it so difficult to truly forgive? How do we forgive? And can anything and anyone be forgiven? Hi, my name is Rosanna D and I'm the host of the Forgiven Tribe Show. This is a safe and not judgmental place for sharing opinions and challenging experiences where the practice of forgiveness helped individuals to get unstuck and create a much more fulfilling life than they had before. Join me in this exciting journey to unveil how you too can have the life you deserve. Simply click the subscribe button below to receive notification about future episodes. Welcome to the Forgiven Trash Show. There are situations and events that have the power to completely change the trajectory of our life. Traumatic experiences transform us into different versions of ourselves. But whether those changes are for the better or worse is largely up to the choices we make, our perception, our mindset, and most importantly, what we focus on. Because in the aftermath of those situations, it becomes so easy to get caught up in what happened and in what could have been. But when we find the courage and the strength to rethink the painful events of our past, we can rewrite some of the most awful things we experienced into opportunities that propel us forward on our path to reaching our own purpose. So today we want to explore exactly that, how pain and extremely challenging situations can be turned into life opportunities and fulfill our own life purpose. And we dive into this fascinating topic with a remarkable woman, Dr. Phyllis DeWitt. Phyllis holds a master's degree as an advanced practice nurse, doctorate degree in nursing, and a postdoctorate as a family nurse practitioner. She endured a very brutal childhood, but she didn't let this challenging start in life define her in any way and turn all her challenges into good for her and others. Together with her husband, Tony, she fostered over 100 children and took permanent legal guardianship of 10 of them. They received many awards for their work with children, including the State of Illinois Family of the Year. In 2006, her husband, Tony, unfortunately passed after a 12-year battle with cancer. But this didn't discourage Phyllis. She continued her mission and her work. After remarrying in 2010, she continued her work with international missions and started traveling together with Craig, her second husband, to underdeveloped 
and often remote areas of the world. So far, Phyllis has completed over 30 international medical mission trips, and she continues to provide medical care to families and to rescue abused and neglected children all over the world. Together with her friend and co-author, Mary Lissandrini, she published recently her book, I'm Still Standing, How God Turned My Pain Into Purpose, where they discuss about overcoming trauma and abuse. Hi, Phyllis. Welcome to the Forgiven Trade Show. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Well, thank you for having me. This is such a delight and such an honor for me to be here. Thank you so much. Well, I read a few things about your bio, and uh, I introduce you as a remarkable woman, and I don't say this lightly. Uh, I would like to start with you and, and your story. Your start wasn't easy. Right. So, um, and I tell people this, that a lot of my story has been validated through being able to talk to some of the abusers as far as the age, because I wasn't real clear about my age um, when it first started, but I started being sexually abused when I was about three years old, and it happened with multiple different family members, and unfortunately, that's not uncommon. Um, oftentimes, things like that do run in families, and so when my abuse started, um, I think the hard part when you're so young is you don't even realize that it's wrong. And so when my abuse started, I just thought it was the same type of childhood that everybody was going through. I really had no concept to be able to fully understand that it was even abuse. And because there was so much um, anger and violence and animosity in my immediate home with my parents, um, oftentimes the abusers were so loving and tender and kind that it just, it, it felt like it was a difficult challenge to call it abuse in the beginning. And so it wasn't until I told somebody when I was about eight that I could see their response on their face. And I knew all of a sudden that what I was talking about wasn't normal. And um, then as I grew older, I started learning more and more that it wasn't normal. And all of that, all the shame and guilt honestly didn't attach itself to it until I was eight years old and, and told somebody. And then all of a sudden, now you're afraid to tell anybody because you already saw one person's response. And that, unfortunately, in my life, the abuse continued. Um, and when I was probably about 15 years old, my um, mother and father got a divorce and my mother went to go live with one of her brothers. Uh, they got separated. And her brother's was my uncle, which was one of my abusers. And I just wasn't going to go. And I ended up going into foster care. And so my first foster home, my um, foster mom was an amazing woman. And she had a little girl and she was pregnant with child number two. And her husband got arrested for bank embezzlement, which I think absolutely just shocked her to death. And she just said, I can't continue doing foster care at this point, so I needed to go to a different foster home. So I went to foster home number two, and I was really excited in the beginning because it was a home that I knew from my church that I was attending. And he was a deacon at our church, and um, she was a housewife. I think she worked part-time at the time. But um, so I was, I was excited that it was going to be you know, somebody safe from my church, and just a few weeks into that experience, my foster dad started molesting me. 
And um, so I went to my youth pastor at the church and I told him what was going on. And his first response was, I just can't believe that. I need you to bring me some proof. And, you know, how does a 15 year old prove something like that? So um, I asked him what he wanted me to do. And he said, I want you to come to my office and I want you to call your foster dad from my office. My foster dad was a firefighter. So he worked for 24 hours and off for 48. So that was easy to do. So I called him from his office and he listened in on the extension. And as I talked to him, I said, um, do you really think this is something that I want? And my foster dad immediately said, oh my gosh, no, I know you don't want this. I know that this isn't something that you're bringing on yourself. I have a problem. I had a problem long before you ever moved in here. And I've heard you cry when I've left your room. And so after that conversation, my, my youth pastor was um, totally apologetic and said, oh my gosh, I, you know, I believe you. I had no idea. This just seemed too outrageous to comprehend, but I'm going to take you in and um, I'm going to explain to our senior pastor everything that's going on and see what the next step is. So I walked in with him to go see um, the senior pastor of our church and so my youth pastor told the senior pastor the whole story, told him that I had, um, you know, called my foster dad and he had listened. And um, my senior pastor told me to leave the church and never come back, that I was no longer welcome there. Um, to my knowledge, there was never any discipline against my foster dad. He remained the deacon of that church. And here I was now, um, you know, a 15 year old, 16 by this time. Um, and no church. That was my huge foundation for my faith, for my strength um, and everything. So it was pretty overwhelming for me. Um, and my, um, fortunately, I had graduated from high school at the age of 16. I actually skipped a year of high school. I kind of over, overcompensated um, for a lot of struggles by really diving into school. So I went to the state and they made me an emancipated minor. So that what that means in the United States is at the age of 16, if you have a job and if you are already done with school, then you are legally now your own guardian and you live on your own and you pay your own bills and you take care of everything. And so here I was, 16, and declared an emancipated minor. And um, But the hardest thing for me was I was without a church. And um, so unfortunately, some of my coping skills weren't very mature then. And I actually attempted suicide. And so I took several sleeping pills and got a hold of some really disgusting tasting lime vodka and drank the lime vodka and took the sleeping pills. And that was one of my first um, hospitalizations in a psychiatric hospital for these issues. And, um, you know, sadly, when you're abused like that, you tend to fall in to uh, almost a, a repetitious trap. And, and someone explained it to me like this. They said, they could take, you know, two women that have been sexually abused from an early childhood and place them in a room with 500 other women and then bring a perpetrator into that room and he would migrate to those two women immediately within five minutes. And I found that pattern happening in my life. Um, I, you know, found it, I, there was a, a police officer that um, ended up raping me. Um, there were just multiple things that just kept repeating themselves in my life. Um, and I couldn't quite figure out what was going on. Um, but then I got married 
And so I was 18 years old and I met my first husband. He was 27, so there were nine years between us and we got married. And within three years, we've got three little kids. And um, then I had a total hysterectomy. I couldn't have any more children. The doctor said that I'd had so much scar tissue from my early childhood abuse that it had created a lot of um, adhesions and things around my, um, my tubes. And so I couldn't have any more children. So um, we started doing foster care. And um, I, in the meantime, I had gotten into counseling and I was getting, you know, some help on trying to figure out, you know, how to um, handle all of this in a healthy way. I was struggling um, with an eating disorder. I was struggling with self-harming. Um, and I've got three babies to take care of. And so the counselor helped a lot. And like I said, we started doing foster care. And over the next um, 27 years, we fostered over 100 kids. We had not intended on specializing in um, sexual abuse, but we ended up specializing in sexual abuse. We um, often took in um, kids who had failed multiple other home placements. And so sometimes we wouldn't get them until they're 12, 13, 14 years old. And they've already been through three or four homes, which means they are really struggling emotionally. And so, um, but fortunately I could, I could use my own history and try to help navigate them through that. Um, and then my husband got cancer. And um, so actually right before he got cancer, before we knew about his cancer, I had gone to him and said, what happens if um, something happens to you? I, I don't even have a college degree. I have no profession. I have no way of taking care of these kids. And, and he said, honey, nothing's going to happen to me. I am super healthy. I'm young. Um, you're just worried too much. But I started nursing school anyway, thinking that I needed to have a profession. And so I started nursing school. We had nine children living in our home when I started nursing school. And I graduated two years later. Um, I went to a local community college, and you can become a registered nurse in two years here at community college. And I graduated in May. And by that August, my husband was diagnosed with cancer. And so I felt it was such a huge blessing that I had felt like God had actually moved me to go to nursing school. Um, and so over the course of the next 12 years, my husband battled his cancer, fought his cancer, and um, he died 12 years later. And at that point, I still was a, now I'm a single mom and I've got five girls at home and um, working full time. And 12 days later, I started my master's degree. So <laughs> That's kind of the gist of the background and um, some of the some of the abuse. You know, I've I've recently written a book, and so it's got much more details and much more um, chronological order to everything in that. But um, that's pretty much the gist of my life. A lot of a lot of sexual abuse, a lot of violence in my home growing up. My father committed suicide when I was sixteen. Um, so just a lot of trauma to overcome, and yet I just have been thrilled to see how God has used that to develop a, a passion and a purpose in my life to be able to serve others and motivate others and encourage others. That is such a, a fantastic story because it's very difficult to deal with trauma, especially of sexual nature. And, and you're right, when we experience that first abuse, then we become more easily a, a target and we have 
perhaps behavior that we meant to use to protect us, but unfortunately they signpost us, as you mentioned before. So uh, it's very it's very difficult to come out of that roller coaster of trauma and uh, trying to heal, and then there is another trauma. And you did it extremely, extremely well and remarkably well. Where did you find the courage? Well, I think for me, what I try to encourage other people is I think the people that struggle the most in trying to navigate through this are the ones that keep it a secret. And so I think that secrecy really um, makes the shame and the guilt grow so much that it paralyzes you. And so what we think we're doing to protect ourselves is actually damaging us even more by keeping it a secret. And so once I learned to start using my voice and telling people my experience, I st and, and I had not read this anywhere, I just started feeling stronger and I started feeling more empowered and I started feeling um, like maybe even the bad things that happen in our life can serve a purpose. And so it just was kind of a roller coaster for me. The more I used my voice to um, encourage somebody or tell them about my story, the less of a negative impact my story had on my own personal life. I, I love that. I always say sharing is caring. And I don't know where I heard this uh, sentence, but I truly believe that. And uh, one thing is uh, to talk about it. And another thing is to put that timeline back on uh, on a piece of paper, black and white. How was that? You know what? It was, it's, it's so fun to look back on that because I feel like even my first husband prepared me for that. One of the things that he and I had the privilege of doing um, and the strength to do was to confront each one of my abusers before he passed away. My husband said, um, you know, what do you want to do? And I said, I would like, I would like to confront them, not because I'm angry, not because I want to get any kind of, um, you know, uh, frustration out on them, but because I want to be able to validate my own memories or correct my own memories if my memories are wrong. And so we were so, so blessed. My husband went with me to confront every single abuser with the exception of one who was already passed away. And not one of them, not one single one denied what they did. In fact, um, most were very apologetic. They helped me put a timeline. Um, that's how I found out that I was three. I kind of thought I was pretty small, but I didn't totally realize I was three until um, one of the first abusers said, Phyllis, you were, you were three years old when I did this. And um, so, so we had all of that. And before my husband died, he said, you know, I'm worried. He knew he was dying. And he said, I, I think someday you will write a book. And he says, I don't know when that will be, but I worry that a lot of the credibility of your story will die when I die. So he actually suggested that we sit down and do a videotape of um, him and I, one of our pastors and his wife, um, my physician and his wife, my um, psychologist that I had seen for many, many years came and we just did a videotape, a two hour videotape of talking about what it was like from my husband's perspective, Tony, what it was like from his perspective to 
go through this with me and to, you know, start the process of healing and go through that process of healing and to confront my abusers and what they said. And, and so he was able to talk about, you know, how they responded and what they said and how they validated my story. And so we had that videotape. And um, so my husband passed away. I hadn't thought about writing. And I actually went to a um, girls weekend um, in another state with two of my girlfriends. And we were talking about, you know, all of our, our you know, wish list on things that we still wanted to do. And I said, you know, I, I've talked about writing a book for a long time, just haven't done it. You know, I, I still think that's something that I need to do. And a few months later, my friend Mary calls me up and she says, you know, that are you serious about writing that book? And I said, absolutely. And she said, I feel like I'm supposed to help you write it. So she knew I had the videotape that my husband had done. And she asked for that. She, I had been hospitalized several times for um, attempting to hurt myself. Um, and usually, in all honesty, they always they always um, labeled it as um, attempt suicide if I had taken an overdose of sleeping pills or something. But to be quite honest, I never wanted to die. I honestly wanted to shut my brain off. And there were times I didn't know how to shut my brain off. And so, you know, if one sleeping pill wasn't going to work, I thought four would work. And so even though some were labeled as suicide attempt, they usually were not. They were usually me just wanting my brain to stop thinking. So anyway, she wanted all of my hospital records. She wanted all my counseling records and those videos. And she studied those intricately for the next year. And then she asked if I would sign a release form for her to talk to my psychologist that I had used for many, many years. So I did that and she had a two hour Zoom conference with him and then she started writing and she and I would collaborate, you know, weekly and she'd write a little, she'd send it to me, I'd send it back, we'd talk on the phone for hours. And so that's how the book came about. But it was a lot of reminiscing and remembering, you know, former counseling sessions, former hospitalizations, former trauma. Um, and so um, it was it was quite the experience. Yeah, I, I can imagine how, uh, you know, the, the level of energy and effort that uh, a book can uh, can require. But I appreciate talking about it and uh, opening up about what happened, because there is this uh, way of saying that hurt people hurt people, yeah. uh, where you have uh, a problem that keeps repeating from one generation to, to another. And in talking, I think, is uh, one of the most important things that we can do for ourselves to break that cycle and, and make sure that we don't pass, whether it's uh, stress, whether it's uh, the, the big trauma uh, as well, to the next generation. So um, it, it was a fantastic uh, move you know, to, to start sharing uh, that for yourself. But also, I think it's very helpful for everybody that is listening. In fact, you have been on several missions uh, around the world, and you have been talking with a lot of uh, particular women who have been uh, abused in, in their lives. What have you noticed in this conversation? What were perhaps the most striking things that came out of uh, uh, that interaction with them? 
that they really needed some convincing, for example, uh, on on how to deal with their own trauma. Yeah, I think, um, well, and, and I'll tell you an example of, of in India. So, for example, we were in India um, the second time, I believe, we were in India. I shared my whole story. And it was really intriguing to have these young girls and women come up to me and tell me that, A, they thought it only happened to girls in India. They had no idea that this was something that also happens in the United States. The other thing I think that surprised them and that I really try to encourage people about is um, I wanted my husband in the room when I shared my story. And they were taken back by that. They said, you know, wasn't, wasn't that hard? Wasn't that um, difficult to have your husband in the room? And, I'm, and this is my second marriage because my first husband died. And I said, absolutely not. I said, um, I have nothing to be ashamed of. I have, there's no embarrassment to my story. Um, and so helping them see that having this kind of a history doesn't leave a mark on your life. I mean, it, it does leave a mark on your life, but it doesn't have to be a negative mark. You know, I have memories that I'll have for the rest of my life. I've um, overcome things that um, are very, very challenging. But at the same time, it doesn't have to cause me to be a victim. It doesn't have to cause me to um, be less than. And so I think showing them that you can be accomplished, that you can be a professional, that you can be happily married, that you um, are not afraid of men, that men are not these, you know, this dangerous, horrible thing that you have to stay away from, um, but that you can have a healthy relationship and a healthy marriage and a healthy family and a healthy profession, regardless of these things. And I think to me, that was the most um, exciting thing that I saw that I gave them that hope. Yeah, it's, uh, it's always uh, very difficult, you know, when uh, you have a situation, you have a trauma, then you keep stuck in, in that trauma. And unfortunately, when you are in that situation, other difficult challenges or situation can happen. So you move from one trauma to, to another because your behavior is uh, perhaps is different and uh, you become more prone to be affected by additional trauma going, going forward. How do you switch from that victim into what I would love to call driver. Sure. So one of the things that was really interesting, I remember it like it was yesterday, but it was many, many years ago. My um, counselor, my psychologist that I was seeing, he said to me, Phyllis, um, I think it's time we start talking about what is there about your behavior that's causing this to keep happening. And he said, now, before we move into this, I want you to understand clearly I am not blaming you for this in any way, shape, or form. He said, however, if we want to really stop this from happening, we're going to really have to take a close look at what there is about your behavior that makes you more vulnerable. And so one of the things, you know, and, and I think you learn this as a child sometimes, that we're supposed to be obedient, and we're supposed to be quiet, and women are supposed to be somewhat submissive, and and we're supposed to um, be super polite. And so I was seriously a much more quiet, reserved. I didn't want to make eye contact with people. I was kind of like the wallflower. You know, I, I'm not going to jump into a conversation. I'm not going to actively engage in a conversation. 
And so when I started learning about those things and realizing that I needed to present myself um, in a way that I was confident, that I, that I would encourage eye contact, that I would, um, you know, even, even initiate hugs with men and women in a healthy way, um, that I would be able to engage in conversations that were sometimes challenging and sometimes not one that a, a woman may, may always start a conversation about, you know, even healthy sex patterns and talking about what, what is healthy sex, you know, for a, for a married woman. And so just having those kinds of conversations, I, people look at you differently. And it was my, my first husband used to say, I feel like I've been married to two different women. The woman I married and the woman you are, are completely opposite because I'm, I am the one that starts conversations when I walk into a room. I am the one that, you know, I'm going to grab, grab you on the arm and say, how are you doing? Or, you know, be the first one to shake your hand, whether you're a man or a woman. So I think showing that level of confidence and um, then for me, also, I think getting my college education and, um, you know, pursuing a profession like a family nurse practitioner, I have to be comfortable talking to men and women. I have to be comfortable talking about sexual dysfunction. I have to be comfortable, you know, um, viewing the body of a man and a woman. And so I think all of those things help to um, teach me how to at least appear, well, and I am stronger, but at least not appear to be a victim and be an easy target for those. In fact, I think people are um, sometimes a little intimidated by me, which is okay. <laughs> I was talking with uh, the children that you fostered. You mentioned before that you sort of specialized in uh, abused children, and obviously they, they were perhaps neglected as well. So how did you approach the conversation with them to make them feel safe, perhaps, make them feel not responsible for what happened to them? Well, one of the things I actually even had them, um, the older children, I would even have them sign a contract. And so I would share my story with them literally within 72 hours of them moving in. If they were old enough, I would give them the version of the story that would match their age. And so um, then they would sign a contract. And in that contract, it would literally say, you know, from this day forward, I realize that I am responsible for my life for my life choices. I am not going to blame my parents, the judicial system, you know, any the police or whoever, because I can make choices to make my life whatever I want it to be. And I tried to model that for them every single day. And we would have those kinds of hard conversations. And I think, I remember the first time one of the girls said, but you just don't understand. And so I literally just handed them one of the newspaper articles where I had, I had um, given a story about my own life and I said, you read this article and then when you're done with it, you tell me what I don't understand. And so I think that was, it's, I think it's just very, very helpful to share your own story. And I, I encourage everybody, we all have a story that someone needs to hear and someone needs to hear it for two reasons. Someone needs to hear it because we need to say it because we need to, to lessen the damage of it but they need to hear it because 
it needs to motivate them as well. There's not a single person on this planet that doesn't have a story that needs to be shared. Yes, it's reaching, uh, being comfortable with the vulnerability of uh, an ownership of, of, of the story and uh, being in the knowledge that, yeah, you were not responsible for it. And uh, so you, you can talk about it and uh, all the lessons learned with the good, the bad, and the ugly. I absolutely love that. Phyllis, it's not possible for love to coexist with violence. And yet, very often, we have situations of abuse and violence that is done in the name of love. Right. What can we say? There are so many situations of women that are beaten up, women that are killed. I was, I was talking with a friend yesterday of a woman many years ago who was killed a couple of days after the International Women's Day and the last messages and uh, pictures on, uh, on Facebook were of her killer, who was her husband or partner in a way, bringing flowers and bringing chocolate. W what can we do to stop this kind of things? Well, first of all, we have to empower women to um, trust their instinct and to understand the cycle of narcissism or the cycle of abuse that men will often um, display and how common it is. And so one of the things that I, I really think is important for women to, and, and I'm, I never try to tell a woman what she needs to do. So I, I'm always very, very careful. I don't, wanna, I don't wanna tell them, you have to leave this person. But I do try to caution them about the dangers of staying given the circumstances they might be sharing with me. And so I always try to make sure that they have identified a safety plan. And so I think it's really important to identify a safety plan, get educated about the cycle of abuse, because when you're in an abusive relationship, you, you often take on owner, they will often press you to take ownership of their behavior. Like you made me so mad, you made me hit you, or you made me do this. Um, we can't ever take ownership for somebody else's responsibility, their, their actions, they're, they're responsible for their actions. And so we have to understand that. And I think the more we inform women about um, a safety plan, the more we inform women about understanding the full dynamics of the cycle of abuse that they are going to hit you and then they're going to feel bad and then they're going to give you flowers and they're going to promise never to do it again and the following week it's going to start all over again. That unless you can get some very, very good help, that's just going to continue and continue and continue to escalate. Um, and so I really try to connect them with a good support system and see what kind of support system they have. And if they don't have a good support system to show them many, many different community support systems and safe homes, you know, um, we have a lot of uh, shelters for abused women here and they can get free counseling and free hotlines and um, just making sure that they have thought through how they need to respond the next time, because there's almost always gonna be a next time. Yeah, it's uh, taking that first step where they become fully aware that the situation is not going to change unless they make a change. Right. You talk about network and, and support. 
who supported you? I mean, obviously your your husband, your first husband was a, a big rock, but did you have also a support network? Um, because the church left you behind. Yes, the church, the, the one church left me behind. Um, I have always had a strong faith. I've, um, God has always been a huge um, part of my life. And so fortunately, um, I plugged into another church. And, um, you know, even, and this is what I want people to understand, that the church is only as safe as its people and people are flawed. And so you still can't, you can't go into a church expecting everybody to be perfect and everybody to understand and everybody to welcome you with open arms. You still have to kind of test the boundaries of relationships, even within a church. And so I tell people to make sure that um, for me, my support system is still mostly through the church, but it's not everybody in the church. It's, you know, hand-selected people. We have a small group that is absolutely amazing. And um, I could share anything with my small group. Um, I developed a few relationships with some very close people in our church. But again, there are abusers that attend church. And there are abusers that hide behind the church to continue to abuse. And so you can't just um, assume because you are in a religious building that these people are all safe. You still have to kind of, um, you know, just trust your instincts. Um, I used to tell people I would oftentimes spoon feed somebody a little bit and then sit back and see how they would respond and then spoon feed them a little bit more and then sit back and see how they would respond. Because I was also, you know, testing their integrity. And I knew where, I knew my strength and I knew that, um, you know, I was not going to allow myself to be abused again. But at the same time, I wanted to make sure that I had safe, healthy people around me. And so that's where I've been able to, to find most of my support is, you know, myself through the church and through my profession. You know, there's been a lot of really dear, dear friends through my nursing career that have been amazing. That's such a, a very good advice. How would you translate that for, for children? Because for an adult, you can tell, test the water. But for children, it's more difficult. They implicitly trust all the adults, especially if there is a situation like a church or a community where their parents send them. So they have that transferred trust, if you like, into the people that are there. How can we as adults teach our children to test the water and, and trust their own instinct? Yeah. So one of the things that I did early with my children is there are so many good storybooks out there about teaching kids how to have clear boundaries or use their voice. Um, you know, one of them, I remember years ago, my my poor children had probably heard 30 of those storybooks and most people, you know, go through their life never hearing any of them. But, um, you know, one of them, it has a story about um, Uncle Timmy is babysitting and Uncle Timmy um, gets you out of the bathtub and touches you underneath your swimsuit. So so they're they're saying it in a way that a six year old can understand. And they're saying, and what does, you know, little Johnny do? Well, you know, little Johnny needs to tell a parent that he trusts or tell a grandma or tell a teacher or, and so when there's fun little storybooks like that, I always thought they were very, very helpful because you could just read the story to them and then talk to them about it afterwards 
in a very non-threatening way and in a way that wasn't going to elicit fear. And I thought that was important to do. Um, there's a little storybook that um, is called uh, Red Light, Yellow Light, Green Light. Green light is when I feel really safe around you and I want you to hug me. And yellow light is, oh, there's something that you did that makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable. Now, what can I do with that? And then it gives the children their choices on what they can do when they have these yellow lights. And then red lights are, you know, someone hit me and someone touched me underneath my swimsuit. And what can I do with that? And then it gives them the choices. And so one of the things that I try to teach parents is educate your kids in a, in a safe um, way to not elicit fear. We don't want our kids growing up afraid of everybody, but we also want them to know clear boundaries and what they're supposed to do when they feel a yellow light or when they feel a red light and what a green light feels like. And so I think there's healthy options out there now on ways that we can help teach our children to be safe. You mentioned the word boundaries, and that is a, a crucial one. And I agree, we should teach our children how to set boundaries and how to enforce them with others. The, the trouble sometimes is that as adults, we don't know about boundaries, and we have not been taught about boundaries. So we don't have them for ourselves. So it's even more difficult to teach To, to our children. So what would you advise there to parents? Or... Well, I think the first thing that parents need to do is get the help that they need to be able to understand how important it is to have boundaries. And that children, even as parents, when you're parenting a child and you don't have boundaries with your children, research shows you they don't feel safe. And so children feel safer with parents that have boundaries. And so the first step would be for that parent to figure out, um, there's so many good books about, you know, um, boundaries in marriage and boundaries in friendships and boundaries with adult children and boundaries with teens. And, um, you know, and I've read so many of them. There's one that's called Safe People. Um, there's a lot of self-help books that adults can use to understand first the importance of boundaries and why it's important to have boundaries, and then how do you start slowly developing boundaries in a, in a good, healthy way? And so I would, I would encourage them to get the help they need first, and then to slowly walk their children through the same process. I absolutely love this, uh, this advice. Phyllis, we have been talking now for almost an hour, and we left the big elephant in the room still untouched, and that's all the emotions that when we are abused, we tend to go through. Sometimes there is uh, shame, sometimes there is uh, guilt, anger. We have all these, these emotions, and obviously they are not helpful for us. They are very disempowering. They don't help us moving forward with our life. So how do we get rid of these emotions that are not serving us? And yeah. I would like to implicitly bring in the concept of forgiveness. Sure. Well, and I do think it's very important to forgive. I mean, I think forgiveness is more for you than it is the other person. And I tell people that all the time. Um, if we're not forgiving others, it, it's poisoning us. It's not hurting them. 
And so, but what forgiveness does not mean, forgiveness doesn't mean that what you did to me was okay. Forgiveness doesn't mean I'm going to have a relationship with you. Forgiveness just means that I understand that you may have also had a lot of pain in your life, which caused you to cause me pain. And I no longer wish you harm. I hope that you get the help that you need. I may not have a relationship with you. I may still, you know, I don't have to trust you. Forgiveness doesn't mean I trust you. Forgiveness means that I am no longer going to let it damage me. I absolutely love that. And uh, yes, this is uh, exactly what I wanted to include in the Forgiven Tribe concept. I would like to, to get back to, to you. Are you planning more missions? Is there anything else that uh, perhaps a second book? <laughs> I have been thinking about another book. Uh, everybody keeps asking me that. Um, in the last six months, we have been in Israel, Costa Rica, Mexico, Scotland, and India. And in two weeks, we are leaving for Romania and Ukraine. We are going to be doing some um, uh, ref war refugee efforts in Ukraine with um, women and children. And we are going to be working with some um, refugees in Romania that have crossed over the border. So, um, you know, these are people that are facing trauma, whether it doesn't even matter what side of the war that you find yourself, there are innocent victims there that are having to navigate through trauma and that are having to help their children navigate through trauma. So, um, yeah, we are headed there in April. So we, you know, we, we try to do at least three mission trips a year. This year we've had a lot more because we didn't do much during COVID. And so we're kind of catching up with some of the missions that we work with. Um, so this last six months has been very busy. Um, but God just keeps opening doors um, to talk to women about overcoming trauma, to talk to children about overcoming trauma, and to, to give hope. And so, I, you know, as long as I have a voice, I, I hope that I continue to use it for that. Wow, that is a, such a beautiful uh, message to to leave our listeners, and uh, I, I wish you really all the best with with this mission. Um, I have uh, Ukraine, and you know the the, the country and the, the children in particular really uh, close to my heart because the situation is uh, is really awful there. So, yeah, uh, I really appreciate the help that people like you can can give to, to them. So if our listeners would like to know a little bit more about what you do and, I don't know, perhaps get in touch and uh, contribute in any way, where they can find you? Well, I have a website and it's phyllisdewitt.com. So it's P-H-I-L-L-I-S-D-E-W-I-T-T.com. And if you go there, you'll learn about my book. You'll learn about some of the mission work that we do. And there's an area there on um, how to get help and some resources that people might need. And there's um, a way to contact me through there. So if they just go to phyllisdewitt.com, they'll find me. Fantastic. And uh, as always, we will put the link in the description of today's episode. Final yeah. question. If there was one take-home message that you would love everybody to remember from this conversation, what would you say? I think I would say that um, don't lose hope. 
and continue to move forward. Um, I really truly believe that some of our deepest passions come from our deepest wounds. And so I really truly believe that good things come out of some of the struggles that we have gone through. Well, I absolutely love that. And in fact, probably you will love uh, the quote that I would uh, like to leave our audience today, which is from Rumi, who said, don't get lost in your pain. Know that one day your pain will become your cure. Amen. So I, I think it's uh, very much in line with what you were saying. And with that, I really hope that this episode has uh, inspired you on how the pain you may be experiencing today doesn't have to stay in your life as pain, but can be turned into powerful fuel to ignite your life passion. Phyllis, thank you so much for the time that you dedicated to us today, for sharing so much about your life and your story, the vulnerability and openness that you showed to us. Uh, it has been a great pleasure to meet you and to talk with you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's much of a pleasure to meet and talk with you as well. So thank you. Thank you. Well, we'd love to know what you think about this topic. Do you or uh, somebody you know, perhaps, dealing with emotional pain of struggling uh, with uh, experiences from the past that haven't been healed yet? Uh, or do you have perhaps questions that we didn't address today? So get in touch. Also, don't forget to check Phyllis' website, to follow her on social media, and to read her inspiring book. You will find all the links in the description of today's episode. If you have been affected in any way by the topic we discussed today, as always, I invite you to seek professional help. Join me next time when we will continue exploring inspiring and challenging situations. Because remember, we are together in this journey. Remember, forgiveness is like a muscle. The more you practice, the stronger and more effective it becomes. If you haven't done it yet, you can subscribe by clicking the subscribe button below. If you know anybody who could benefit from the topics discussed in this show, do some good and share the link with them. If you have a story that you want to share with us, comments or suggestions on topics you would like to be explored, send me an email at forgiventrive.com at gmail.com. Reviews will also be very much appreciated. And with this, it's a wrap. Till next time, thank you and goodbye.